give the kids a couple of minutes to kind of get dismissed. And um, thank you so much for coming this morning. Thank you for being a part of this. If you're joining us online this morning, thank you for joining us. My name is Floyd, and uh, if you're new here, we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, 1 Samuel, of course, is an Old Testament narrative book, and it tells the stories. And so there's kind of this big story going on of, of the, the process of moving from a, an era, era of judges um, and prophets to an era of kings. And so we titled this series, Looking for a King, because that seems to be sort of the, the cry of the day for the Israelite nation is that they're looking for a king. They're looking for someone to, um, to answer the issues of the day, which were that there were enemy nations who were building strongholds right there in Israel, terrorizing the Israelites. Um, there was problems in the camp and out of the camp. There was a lot of stuff going on, and they needed someone to set this stuff right, to deliver them from their enemies, to help them make good decisions, to guide them, and they thought they needed a king. And they were right about that, but they were wrong about it. They were right in thinking that they needed a king. They needed the king of kings, but they were wrong in thinking that an earthly king could fix the problems of their day. They were wrong in thinking that some political figure would be able to solve all of the issues that they were facing. But that doesn't stop them from coming. And if you remember, if you've been here as we worked our way up to this point, you remember the story of how they come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. And Samuel says, you don't want a king. That king is going to do nothing but take from you. He's not going to be a giver. He'll be a taker. And they don't listen to Samuel. They go ahead and they ask for the king. And Samuel anoints King Saul to be their king. If you were here last Sunday, you saw the tragic story of Saul's disobedience and how God rejected Saul as king. And essentially, that's the reason for what we find ourselves looking at today in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We are finally by chapter 16, getting to the figure of David. Now, if you're familiar with this book, you knew David was coming. And you knew that, that this was going to be actually the, the king that was going to be the forerunner and the type of Jesus Christ, the king of kings, because he comes after the order of King David. And so, this is the king that that generation was looking for, but he's not the king that our generation is looking for. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to look at the story of how David comes on the scene. And there's this sort of familiar phrase in there that we're going to read in a moment in the text where God reminds Samuel that he looks on the heart that man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And it, it struck me that, you know, on any given Sunday morning, we all walk in here and we put our best face on. We dress up a little. We make sure that we smile at the people that we see. And we put the best image forward that we can. And many, many times, we hide what's really going on inside. And we just hope that nobody sees it. We hope nobody sees the stuff that we were dealing with the, the week before. 
the anxiety or sin, pride, lust, whatever it was. And we hope that people look at us and think, my goodness, that's a good Christian. They're, they're looking good. And we forget that God is watching. And this is kind of that sobering reminder that God does, in fact, see the heart. And he sees exactly what's going on. And in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And I think that hopefully, by the time we get done, you're able to say, I'm actually glad he sees the heart. I'm actually glad he can see it. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn them to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm also going to have the text on the screen if you would like to follow along there. And what I'd like to do this morning is just read the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? Because we just looked at in, in chapter 15 how Samuel had told Saul that God had rejected him as king. And you see the, the grief that Samuel is feeling over this. And I, it's hard for me to imagine that emotion that Samuel was experiencing in the the moment. Samuel had literally invested his life into the children of Israel. And you read, I think it's in chapter 12, where Samuel is sort of stepping down as the leader, and from that point on, he starts to minister to the king instead of ministering directly to the people. But Samuel has literally poured out his life for these people, for this nation of Israel. This is really all he knows And there's few things that are so um, heartbreaking as to see something 
that you have invested your, your passion and your heart into, especially by distinct calling of God, and then to see somebody else come in and mess it up. And that's the position Samuel finds himself in. There's a deep sense of grief that he's feeling, and you see it in verse 1 where God is addressing Samuel. He's like, how long are you going to grieve? He's like, pick up your head, let's move on. Let's keep going here. And so you find Samuel going down to Bethlehem, and I don't know if you remembered that David came out of Bethlehem. I hope you did. Um, Because again, those are some of the first indications that this is a type of Christ, that he's he's a picture of Christ, because Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem, and what they call it, the city of David. And so he goes to Bethlehem, and and then you find this kind of fascinating scene where he's there at Jesse's house, and Jesse is bringing all of his boys in front of him, and the first one, I mean, this is king material. And he looks at him, he says, that's that's the guy, I'm pretty sure it is. I mean, he checks all the boxes. He looks good, he's strong, he's the firstborn. And I'm here, and I've got the oil, and let's go. And God begins to talk to Samuel again, and he says, no, um, don't assume that what you see is what God sees. Now, it would be interesting to know how many of you here today are the baby of the family. But there's something unique about being the baby of the family, isn't there? David is the baby of the family. He's the youngest. And I suspect that some of the same stereotypes that we have today about the baby of the family fit him. Like, can you imagine maybe his older brother saying things like, he always gets what he wants. <laughs> yeah, see, I hear an amen. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a baby of the family. Yeah. Or, we never had to, we, we never got to do what he gets to do or she gets to do. My parents were way harder on me than they were on the baby. And babies of the families don't really lead. They follow. Have you noticed that? Like if you're the oldest, you've got to lead. You don't have a choice. You have to sort of step up and, you know, at times help your younger siblings out. And they're watching you. They're figuring out what to do and what not to do. The oldest man, he's got to clear the path. They got it rough. And you know who really has it rough? It's the second child. That was me. (laughs) That was me. (laughs) There's where I needed the amen, right there. Second child has it rough. You're not the oldest and you're not the baby. Um, And there's something about second children. You can't ever just walk in the footsteps of your older sibling or else I was never willing to. I always had to make my own path. I was always so afraid that I would have to like do everything the same way that the older sibling did. I don't know why that bothered me. I don't know. I I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe I just need more counseling. I'm not sure. But... (laughs) David's the baby of the family. He's the one that we're focused on. And he, for whatever reason, was not even brought in front of Samuel 
in the context of Samuel as the man of, the Lord, man of God there. And I don't know what Jesse expected. I don't know what Jesse thought was happening. They knew something unusual was happening. That's about, really about all they knew. At no point in the narrative do you find that Samuel told Jesse, I'm going to anoint Israel's next king. So I assume that Jesse didn't know that. But whatever is happening, he understands that he's supposed to sort of bring his sons in front of Samuel. And why didn't he bring David? I don't know. All we're left with is speculation. But I think there's some fairly safe speculation that goes something along the lines of there was a sense of disregard of David. And that maybe David had, I don't know, maybe he was a tag-along. Maybe he was one of those that, you know, was unexpected. And they thought they were done, and then David showed up. I don't, I don't know. I'm speculating. But for whatever reason, Jesse didn't bring him in front of Samuel that day. Now, put yourself in David's shoes for just a moment. You're the youngest child, and somebody very important comes to your house and says, I would like to see all of your children. And your parents bring all of them except you. What do you start to assume about yourself, about your parents, about your siblings? Like it's pretty hard not to see that as, wow, so I'm unimportant. There must be something wrong with me. Why didn't dad have me come with the rest of the brothers? And David is in a position where he could have bought into all kinds of lies about himself and doubts. And he could have made all kinds of assumptions about himself that could have dramatically changed the trajectory of his life. And coming into a scenario where the king who is being rejected is deeply insecure, it seems risky to go select the youngest of the family who his dad doesn't even think is qualified to be there as one of the sons to go select that guy as the next king when you just come off of having a king who is so insecure and everything is a threat to him. But that's where God goes and that's what God does. If you went on to the rest of the passage, just very quickly, verses 14 to 23, it talks about how, if you, remember, if you were paying attention to verse 13, it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord rushed onto David. Isn't that interesting terminology? It's just interesting to me that that's the way he describes the Spirit of God. I don't know any other place in the Old Testament. There might be a place, I don't know. There's times where it talks about the Spirit of God was with someone, talks about times when the Spirit of God came to somebody or came on them. But with David, it says he rushed on him. And someday in heaven, I really hope I get a chance to sit down with David and say, David, exactly what was happening in that moment? Like, what did that feel like when the Spirit of God rushed on you? Isn't it interesting they use that term? But then immediately in the next verse, you find that the Spirit of God leaves Saul. It says in verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And so God sent a tormenting spirit to Saul. Now, 
This may or may not fit your theology. I don't know. You may have a theology that says, well, I don't believe God would ever send a harmful spirit to somebody. And could you explain how that all works? Does that mean that that God's causing bad things to happen to me? Well, actually, I can't explain all of the nuances of that. All I know is that it says God sent a harmful spirit, and I take it for what it's worth. If your theology has a God who does not have the ability or the power to control even the demonic spirits, then your God's not big enough. He can. And he clearly did in this situation. Now, you could say he allowed it. That's, that's probably okay. Um, you could say that that harmful spirit came to Saul because of the choices he had made, and that's probably true. That's not the language the narrator, the narrator uses here. He just says God sent that harmful spirit to him. And so that created a, um, almost a madness in Saul. And by madness, I mean like a, almost an insanity. Like it would torment him. And the people in Saul's court eventually say, let's do this. Let's find somebody that's skilled in music and have them come and play for you in times when this tormenting spirit is bothering you. And so David came. They found David. And he came and played music for Saul to calm the torment. And so David would come in and he would play it, calls it a lyre, and some translations call it a harp. And he would play this instrument and he would sing. Where did he learn to play and to sing? It doesn't say. I suspect it was probably in the lonely hours of taking care of sheep by yourself. Just David and God making music. And David learned to to sing and to play. And he evidently did it different than just someone who sang and played. But there was something about the way that David did it that would actually affect Saul and would calm the tormenting spirit. And it says that Saul loved David and even included him as an armor bearer. Now, there is a, and I'm just going to acknowledge this right now because we're going to look at it again next week. There is a, a continuity timeline question that is raised by this. And, and I don't exactly know how to answer this. Because in this text, David is introduced to Saul as the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And it talks about how Saul greatly loved him. When we get over into the next chapter where it talks about the story of David slaying Goliath, when that is over, Saul brings David in front of him and he says, who are you? And they say, and he says, well, I'm David, the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Doesn't that raise a question of timeline? Like, is which, which time was the first introduction? Because you have two separate instances of introduction of David being introduced to Saul, and where, which one is the first one? And did they happen years apart or in close proximity to each other? We don't know. It doesn't exactly say. There's a couple possibilities. One of them being that what he's describing in verse 14 and 23 is a summary of what's going to be described more in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. And, and that... 
um, that it may be more of a summarization of what's to come further off in the future. And so at some point, he also includes that there was an introduction and that that introduction actually took place around the slaying of Goliath. That doesn't answer all the questions, but that's one idea. Another um, idea, and this is probably more commonly believed, that this uh, section of 14 through 23 was probably while David was very young, and that a number of years passed by before the slaying of Goliath, and that Saul literally didn't recognize him. When he came and, and um, you know, and that eventually that this, that this is describing a fairly short period of time, maybe six months or a year, where David was in Saul's house. Um, I, it, it's hard to say because it does look like chronologically David was playing for Saul to calm him after the slaying of the, of the giant. And, um, and so I'm going to let you kind of draw your own conclusions or your own speculation because the text doesn't say specifically, I'm not going to say specifically. Um, but both clearly did happen. And there was clearly a, um, a point where David and Saul were introduced to each other in the context of David offering what he had to Saul. Whether it was with the giant or whether it was in this context, it was the almost reverse order of what you would normally think of the boy offering something that was of power and strength to the king for his purposes. And, and instead of the king being the protector and the one with the power, it was the boy who had the power and who was the protector. So either way you translate the, chrono the chronology and the timeline, both are true in, in every situation. And that should sort of cause us to step back and say, well, isn't this odd? So the boy, who is supposedly the weak one, is now ministering strength, or he's bringing strength and power and protection to the king whether it's through the music or slaying the giant. But I want to look at several points and several um, lessons that I think we can learn from this text. The first one, God has a plan to redeem. The Lord has a plan to redeem. You find that right away in verse 1 of this text, where God is coming to Samuel and he's saying, don't grieve anymore. He's like, I have a plan. I have a plan. And it's a plan to redeem. You know, God would have been within his rights as Jehovah God to have looked at the nation of Israel and have said, listen, I warned you that when this king would come, that he'd take and take from you. And that he wouldn't be a good king, he'd be a bad one. I warned you that this is a bad idea. And God would have been within his rights to say, I warned you, you went ahead and did it anyway, I'm done. I'm done with you. Go find your own way through history. Maybe you make it, maybe you don't. And God would have absolutely been just in having looked at the nation of Israel and said, you do not deserve redemption. You don't deserve God intervening on the story and making something good out of what was bad. And that's what redemption really is. It's when God intervenes in the story and he takes the messes 
And he turns them into something that honors his name. And redemption doesn't happen unless God intervenes. Left to their own devices and their own chorus, Israel was on a path of self-destruction. And they were going to self-destruct their story if they were left to themselves. And if God doesn't intervene, that's where they're headed. And if you know the story of Israel, you, it's almost like they are determined to self-destruct. It's almost like I need somehow to keep making bad choices. Have you ever had somebody in your life, or maybe you've, you've looked at your own life and said, why do we keep going the same direction? Why do I keep making the same bad choices? Why does that person I love keep insisting on self-destructing themselves? And at what point is God going to look at me or look at them and say, I don't think I can do anything with this story anymore? Listen, as long as there's life, there is a loving Father who can redeem the story. And David is the picture, he's the, he's the arrow pointing to the King of Kings. He's the arrow pointing to Christ. And the story of bringing David onto the scene to redeem the story is really a story of God bringing Jesus on the scene to redeem your story and my story. Because every one of us comes into life sinful and broken, selfish by nature. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned aside every one of us, every one of us to our own way. We are all by nature destroying our own story. And left to ourselves, if we are our own gods, we will self-destruct. We will mess up the story. And if you've lived very long, you know this to be true. You know your own propensity and ability to sin and to mess up your story. Choices you wish so bad you could take back and redo. Moments when it's embarrassing when you even think about those moments. Man, I wish I could do that again. I wish I could redo that and I'd do it different. I know I'd do it different. And you don't have to live very long and you recognize that we're not very good at being our own gods. But it sure doesn't stop us from trying. And what we so desperately need is God to intervene into our story, to change the trajectory of our life, and to make value out of something that was going the wrong direction. And it can happen through Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel, is that we who were apart from God, who were alienated from God because of our own sin, can be restored in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So the first lesson is that God has a plan to redeem. The story of this story is the story of a bigger story of God's plan to redeem. Secondly, the Lord looks at our hearts. And I alluded to this at the beginning of this message, and I want to just spend a moment or two with this because it is quite likely that you and I, like Adam and Eve, when there is an awareness of sin, we attempt to hide from God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? In the garden, first sin, first thing they do is go hide from God. And that is our default response to guilt and to shame in our life as we start to hide. In fact, have you noticed that when you're experiencing guilt and shame, our flesh response is not to say, boy, I need God right now. Our first fleshly, natural human response is to say, 
I hope nobody finds out. And we start the process of hiding. Most of the time, we will hide from God's people as we're trying to hide from God. If you find yourself saying, because of the mess that is going on in my life right now, I don't want to be around Christians. I'm not going to that Bible study. I don't want to go to church right now. I just don't want to be around those people. Like, I just don't feel like it. Can I challenge you for a moment? Don't respond with hiding. We have a God who sees anyway. It's a fool's errand to pretend that we can hide from God. It's impossible. When God is telling Samuel, in the context of Samuel, I know what you think you see, but you don't understand what I see. God is exposing or revealing something about himself that we need to know, and that is that God does, in fact, see our hearts. And that should not bring discomfort to us. It should bring immense comfort to us, and here's why. I don't want, and neither do you, for there to be some hidden, dark, corner sin of my life that God is unaware of and therefore hasn't forgiven. In order for the forgiveness to be complete, the awareness also has to be complete. In order for God to wholly and completely redeem my life and to forgive the darkest, worst moment of my life, the worst sin of my life, then he must know about it and he must be able to see it. And if I understand my desperate need for complete forgiveness, I will embrace the complete knowledge of God of my heart. I need it. I want it. And I don't want to serve a God who is somehow unable to see all of the thoughts and the intents in every part of my life because if he's unable to see it he would then be unable to forgive it and to restore and redeem trying to hide from God is a complete waste of time the, the response ought to be in light of this truth to say Lord you already know it's there I'm ready to acknowledge it Lord, there's nothing I want to hide from you. You know my heart. He sees the heart. Nobody's fooling God. He sees it. And I say, Lord, you know it's there. I bring it to the cross because he has a plan to redeem. Third thing, the Lord's Spirit changes everything. And I referred to that a moment ago where it talks about the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and it says, and from that day forward. In other words, whatever we read in the next chapters in this story, until the day where it says David died and was buried with, the, with his fathers, which would be in 2 Samuel, between this moment and that moment, we should read in the context of this statement that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and was with him from that day forward. Did David mess up? Yes, he did doesn't mean he didn't have the ability to sin. But there was something 
different about David. And even when he sinned, there was this brokenness and this repentance and this sense of, God, I didn't want to dishonor your name. Why? Because he was the man that God was looking for. A couple chapters ago, when, when Samuel comes to Saul and he says, Saul, God has rejected your king. And he says he's going to seek a man. How does he describe it? After his own heart. He says God's looking for a man after his own heart. A man who wants the heart of God, who wants what God wants, who sees as God sees, who loves God like God loves. And that was David. And it happened because the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, because the Spirit of God was with him. And in that context, you see the contrast between David, who has the Spirit of God, and Saul, who the Spirit of the Lord has left. And if you happen to think, well, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is there. Actually wrong about that. The Holy Spirit shows up repeatedly in the Old Testament. And this is one of those situations. What's different is that in the New Testament after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit automatically indwells the person or the, the person who has a faith in Jesus Christ. And after a little bit, I'm going to put up some, some references at the end, and you can copy those down this, just to give you to go deeper in that particular vein of thought or that, that idea. It's worth studying what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit dwelling in the lives of believers, those who believe in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God would sanctify people, and he would, or he would set them apart, and then he would give them a portion of his Spirit for what they had to do. But this, this term, the Spirit of the Lord on David... It radically changes everything. It changes the trajectory of David's life. It changes the way David's going to respond in a couple more chapters where we see him on the run for his own life when he's being threatened. It changes it all. God's Spirit changes everything. And doesn't this sort of start pointing to another moment there's a moment in, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 4, I believe it is, where Jesus stands up in a temple and he reads out of Isaiah 61. And Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says in that story in Luke, it says that Jesus was at the synagogue and he read this. He just took the scroll and he stands up and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. This is terminology that they would have understood to be applied to men like David. Elisha, Elijah, those kinds of characters. And now here is this sort of unknown person who's standing up and he's saying this is happening in front of your eyes and it talks about it in Luke it says he read that out of the scroll and it says and then he just sat down and it says everybody in the synagogue looked at him and then he just says today you're seeing this prophecy fulfilled in your eyes in front of you 
Isn't that interesting? Jesus is saying all of, all of what they had initially understood when the Spirit of God would come on to a man and would anoint them, and they would think in terms of men like, like Abraham and, and Isaac and David and, and Elijah and all of those prophets of old, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they would think about those men when they would read this. And all of a sudden, Jesus sits there and he says, all of that was about me. It was all, a pointing, it was all pointing to Jesus because none of them had actually completely fulfilled everything that God intended to anoint the King of Kings, but Jesus did. Jesus is the perfect and complete and total fulfillment of this. And because, because He is the fulfillment, because the Spirit of the Lord was on Him, and because He was anointed, that's what makes it possible for you and I to experience God's Spirit living within us and changing us and transforming us from the inside out. That's what suddenly at Pentecost happened when it talks about how the Holy Spirit came on them. It was not possible before because the, the sin issue had not been dealt with. But now that Christ had died and He had forgiven sins, because he had rose the third day and defeated death, now we, you and I, humankind, could be forgiven and could be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and could now become a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And Jesus is saying, it's, he is there as a complete fulfillment. There is no experience of the Holy Spirit indwelling the life of a human outside of faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't exist. In the book of Acts, you read of a couple places where people attempted to latch on to the Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's power, but without a surrender and a yielding to Jesus Christ. And they were exposed as frauds immediately. And without a heart that is yielded to Jesus, the, the work and the power of the Holy Spirit is not available. It can be envied, it can be desired, it can be misunderstood, and it usually is, but it cannot be experienced outside of a heart that is cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the sermon in a sentence, where the Spirit of the Lord is in control, the will of God is done, and the person of God is transformed. Where God's Spirit is allowed to control where your life or my life has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, where we've been forgiven, the Holy Spirit has room to work and to move and to control, and God's will is done and the person is transformed. You know why we do not see in our day the Holy Spirit working like we wish He could? It's not because he's too weak. It's not because he's disinterested. It's because we keep serving ourselves. It's because we're not letting him. We are little control freaks. We're trying so hard to hold on to the control of our lives. And we're not about to give up and yield. Or maybe there's this pet sin 
that sits there. And we don't like it. We don't like the shame it brings. But we sure do like the pleasure it brings. And so we keep holding on and keep hanging on. And then we hear somebody describe what your life could be like if the Holy Spirit were in control. I mean, where else would you go except somewhere like Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit being love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, self-control, and you think, boy, I wish I would look more like that. I wish the Holy Spirit had more control of my life, but I'm not giving up. I'm not about to bring my life and my thoughts and my actions and, and my, my deeds under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then we look around and we're like, why, why do Christians act the way they do? Why are, why are things in the shape that they are? Why are marriages struggling? Why are we dealing with some of the sin issues that we deal with? Holy Spirit's not leading us into that kind of stuff. That's not because of the Spirit. That's because of our flesh. And, and through much of the New Testament's teaching, that is essentially the teaching that they bring to the church over and over and over. You can walk in the flesh if you want to, but then you're going to get those kinds of results. Or you can walk in the Spirit and you will get those kinds of results as well. And if you and I push God to the edges of our lives, like, man, we're busy. We got things to do, we got places to go and people to see. And pretty soon it's, like, well, it's been quite a while since I've really connected with God. Don't open the Word much. Don't pray much. And what seems like very innocent choices of the day begin to affect the trajectory of our lives. Because our busyness is driving our lives, not the Spirit of God. Our goals are driving our lives, not the Spirit of God. And then when things start to crash, we wonder, where in the world is God? Why didn't He keep this from happening? Well, maybe you've been pushing Him to the edge. Maybe you haven't let Him lead. Maybe He's not been allowed to be Lord. The Spirit of God is not going to work in our lives outside of a yielding to Jesus Christ. There may be a call of God, like there was on Saul. Even an anointing of God, like there was on Saul. But without the blessing of God because of the sin, like there was Saul. It's very possible for myself or any of us to hold titles that would indicate that God is calling and yet to be so self-driven that it's not really of the Spirit. In our prayer time before church this morning, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and Paul talks about how I came to you not with words of wisdom, not in eloquency of speech. He says, by the Spirit and the demonstration of power. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't want to bring the gospel with clever human effort. I just want to see the Holy Spirit at work. I want to see the Spirit's power at work. Can you imagine what our churches would look like across America 
If the people of God were yielded to the Spirit of God and were doing the will of God for the glory of God, we would call that revival. That's what we would call it. Revival is what happens when the people of God surrender themselves to the will of God to do the purposes of God for the glory of God. That's what happens. We would see marriages healed. We would see broken relationships healed if we would start to deal with this stuff that's in our lives. Bitterness. That, that thing that's, you know, that time when someone offended you and you're like, man, I cannot forgive that. I will not forgive that. I, mean, it's, I, I, I can't get over that. Holding on to that stuff is pushing God away. And then we wonder why we are powerless against the temptations of sin. We are in a desperate need of the Spirit of God again to empower His people. It is the great need of our day. We don't need a political figure. We don't even need more books written. We don't need another worship song. We just need people who are surrendered and yielded the Spirit of God and are being changed by Him. I have at home, I've got a book. Um, it's called They Found the Secret. And it's just this, and I think I've referred to it before here. It's just this story after story of men and women who found what it was to walk in the power of the Spirit, who were baptized by God's Spirit after they were believers, by the way, that they experienced a greater infilling of God's Spirit. One of those stories is a guy by the name of Oswald Chambers, and maybe familiar to some of you, maybe not to others. Wrote a book, um, lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and uh, wrote a book called My Utmost for His Highest. Actually, he didn't write the book. These were devotionals that he shared, and his wife, after his death, put it in a book form and began to sell it. But Oswald Chambers talks about how he would read the Bible and he would just, and he would just compare his life with what he would see in Scripture. And I can identify with Oswald's stories. I, I remember a period of my own life where I would read the Bible and, and I would just compare the stories in there and with, with my own life. I'd think, I don't move and work in the same motivation and power that these people did. Like, they, they didn't even regard their own lives. Like, we, we're going to tell you about Jesus and you could take us out back and execute us. Don't care. We're still going to do it. They would arrest them and, they'd, and instead of calling their congressman or a lawyer, they had a prayer meeting. And they didn't pray like we would pray. I mean, check me out, Acts chapter 4. They didn't pray like we would pray. If we were being persecuted and said, you can't speak in the name of Jesus, we'd be having prayer meetings. We'd be saying, um, Lord, take out our leaders. Remove them. That's not the way they prayed. They said, oh, Lord, give us boldness. And there was a fire that burned in their hearts that gave them a, a, a driving force that was deeper than even preserving their own physical life. And I remember reading some of those stories a number of years ago and just thinking, Lord, I don't know what all you put me here for. And I still don't, by the way. But I know that I do not want to go through 
the rest of my days without that kind of fire in my heart. I don't want to live without the Spirit's fire burning, transforming, changing. And so I started praying. Oswald Chambers started praying. And Oswald would pray, Oh Lord, send the Holy Spirit. Give me the Holy Spirit. And it went for four years. Oswald Chambers said he described those four years as a living hell. Pretty dramatic. <laughs> but he said the awareness that God was not blessing his life and the longing for it nearly drove him insane. And he wanted it. And the great awareness, the moment of awareness really came as he realized that it was his areas that he was refusing to give up and refusing to yield to Christ that were keeping the Holy Spirit from working in his life. It was his lack of abandon that was keeping it from happening. And when Oswald Chambers finally said, Lord, just take the whole thing, take my life, the whole thing, everything, you can have it all. He said, he, said he, didn't, he didn't actually experience anything emotionally. Like some people, sometimes people will have somewhat of an emotional experience. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't even know anything had changed until the next time he got up to speak to a group of people and somebody said, that was with the Spirit's power. And he began to see his life change dramatically. David's story, as the Spirit of God came upon him, does not instantly get easier. In fact, you're going to find David's story gets harder. If you and I will yield our lives to the Spirit of God, I cannot promise you that it gets easier. In fact, it might get harder. Here's what I can promise. It will be better. It will be better. It is much better. Because rather than trying to conjure up some kind of an external appearance of peace and piety, well, that was a tough word. Rather than trying to conjure this thing up, like, like, like showing people how pious we are, how, how righteous we are, how good of Christians we are. The peace now is inward. And then regardless of what's happening externally, we can have the inward peace of God's presence at work in our lives by His Spirit. And which would you rather have? External peace or internal peace? Because if you look at the last chapter before 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 15, Saul is attempting by outward appearance to achieve external peace. What's he saying to Samuel? He says, he says come, let's go do a sacrifice together so that the people will see. He's, he's, he wants the people to be able to look at him and say, and they don't, he doesn't want them to see him as a disobedient king. They want him, he wants the people to see him as the king that God is blessing because he's doing sacrifices with Samuel. And so he's trying to get Samuel, let's take care of the external. Like, let's take care of the sacrifice part. Let's make sure that we put on a good face, that we make it look good for people. That's Saul's position. And Samuel walked away from him. He's not going to have a part of that. God's not interested in that. And what was happening internally in David is what equipped him to go through the next years of his life. We want to rush to King David and we forget the years that he hid in caves and ran for his own life. Wondering where in the world 
this anointing was that had happened this day in this passage, and we're going to get to that in the coming weeks. Don't you think David, at moments, while he was hiding in a cave, said, what was that about when Samuel came to my house and anointed me? And what allowed David to go through those years of difficulty? It was the fact that something was going on inside him that was far greater than what was going on outside him. That's our great need. If you want to go deeper study, I want to quickly put that up and, and just very quickly call attention to those scriptures. I would challenge you this week to do some digging in those scriptures. If you need to pull your phone out and snap a picture of that or take some notes or whatever, I, I think that there is a, um, an important component of God's Word describing the work of His Spirit that creates within us the hunger for His Spirit to work. You understand what I'm saying? As you read His Word, because this, this happens regularly throughout the stories of great men and women of God, saints of God. As you read His Word, you see God's hand and His power at work and you say, that's what I want. That's what I want. And it's possible to be in a setting where there's a lot of emotion that may or may not be, have anything to do with the Holy Spirit at all. But it is impossible to experience inner transformation where you begin to see things differently, you begin to see people differently, and you begin to have a different appetite for God's Word without the Spirit of God moving in our hearts. So do some more study. Worship team, I want to invite you to come on up. I need to bring this to a close. Oswald Chambers had on his tombstone, he died very suddenly in his 40s of a ruptured appendix. He was in Egypt, so they buried him there in Cairo, and he had this written on his tombstone. And I want to close with this as a challenge to you. This passage out of Luke chapter 11, verse 13. And he just had that engraved. And if you went there today, you'd still see it. It just says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It was Jesus' words. He uses a comparison of earthly fathers who were imperfect. And there in Luke chapter 11, he says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Have you asked him? Are you asking him? Would you ask him? Let's pray. Lord, this morning, thank you um, again for this story of David and, and this anointing. God, I thank you for just a reminder again that it's really the work of your Spirit in, in our lives that changes us, that transforms us. God, you can take a, a proud person and make them humble by your Spirit. You can take a lustful person and make them pure by your Spirit. God, we have no hope of it happening any other way by our human effort. So, Lord, search our hearts as only you can. Father, I pray that you would, um, that you would stir our hearts with a longing and a hunger to know you more, to be yielded to your Spirit. God, if there's sin in our lives, expose it, show it to us. And we bring it to the cross. 
God, you know every story here. You know, there may be places where we just need to give up or yield. Say, God, I've been trying to run, it, run my life on my own and I just can't do it. Keep making a wreck out of it. Spirit of the living God, pray that you'd come like a fire and that you and you alone would change our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. And we love you. Pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.